On today's show, Philip Jakobsen. He's a physiotherapist by trade and he's vastly experienced, who's worked in Germany at the start of his career before heading to Greece, where he worked in football with Panathinaikos. He then came to the UK, where he worked with Portsmouth Football Club, before going to Qatar to work at Aspatar, one of the world's leading sports medicine orthopaedic hospitals. He was there for 11 years before conversations led him to Liverpool Football Club, where he became the medical rehabilitation and performance manager. Vastly experienced practitioner, and today on the show, we're going to talk about some of the demands of high performance and what that means for practitioners, some of the challenges that we face when working on a day-to-day basis. Hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Welcome to another edition of the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Ben Ashworth, and today it's a real pleasure to welcome Philip Jakobsen to the show. Welcome, mate. Hi, Ben. How are you? Yeah, very good. And as you said uh, just off air there, it would be nice to have this conversation over a pint but today we're going to have to do it I think I believe, I believe you're in the Greek islands uh, where it's pretty choppy and windy it is and I can tell you the Greek beer um, is, is probably not one of my favorites but it's uh, it's still drinkable and uh, I'd love to share a pint with you at some stage when you come over nice one well yeah or you can come to Prague where we have probably one of the best beers in the world so yeah very true very true all right, let's um, let's just uh, sort of bring the listeners listeners into the conversation a bit, and um, essentially, like, for those people that don't know you, it'd be great if you could just give them a little bit of background about yourself and uh, you know how how you've come to be where you are at the moment. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a physiotherapist by trade. Uh, studied in Germany um, and started sort of like my career path in a rehabilitation center in, in, in Germany called Eden Reha, which was at the time run by the head of physiotherapy for the German national team. And that's probably the first time where I got into touch with professional athletes, especially football. Um, started working there for about two years and in a very different way, I would say. Um, it was just, you know, I was seeing 15 minutes, uh, 15 minutes appointments, uh, loads of clients during the day, and um, at some stage, I just said to myself, "Look, this can't be, can't be it. You know, there, there must be more to physiotherapy than um, raking through patients day in day out." And then, um, yeah, the opportunity came um, to go and work in Greece uh, for a football team, which is actually quite a funny story because uh, a colleague of mine said to me, hey, Phil, you know what? There's a job going in Greece. Um, why don't you apply? And I was like, come on, what am I going to do in Greece? Never been there. Uh, no idea what it was like. 
And then this friend of mine sent actually my CV to these recruiters, these two physiotherapists. And um, the weekend came, they invited me for, um, for an interview. And I thought to myself, it was up in Frankfurt. It was about five hours drive by car. And I thought to myself, oh my God, am I going to really do this? And um, took the decision, drove up there, had a good chat with the guys. Um, and on the way home, they said, they called me and said, Phil, you know, we really liked you. Um, would you like to come and join us? So I was like, Okay, I <laughs> packed my bag, sold everything, and um, moved to Greece. And to be honest, not even knowing what club I would actually work for. Um, wow. I knew the name, but I, I didn't really knew much about Greek football at the time. And um, arrived in Athens and then realized that it was uh, one of the big two clubs, which was um, obviously at the time Panathinaikos and Olympiakos. And I got a job with Panathinaikos and stayed there for four and a half years. Um, from from there, moved on with our team manager to Portsmouth. Um, worked there for one and a half seasons and um, Changed job afterwards again, met my wife, moved back to Germany, uh, opened my own clinic, did a bit of consultancy work um, in, in Munich and realized that also Germany, it was just the same old again. The system hadn't changed and it wasn't really for me. And then an opportunity came up um, to work in Qatar. They advertised um, in a sports medicine, orthopedic sports medicine hospital that was brand new. Um, they were looking for people with sports backgrounds and that have worked in professional sports, football predominantly. So I applied for the job and, yeah, got the job and thought, first of all, we're going to go there for two years, see what it's like, and ended up staying for 11 years which was uh, a great 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 experience um because we started really from day one so we I, think, I can't remember how many people we were in the beginning but it was sort of 20 physios from all corners of the planet um different languages obviously different ideas philosophies and it was a real learning process to get everybody around the table and discuss how we want to treat our athletes. And it was such a new and novel thing in, in Qatar with physiotherapy that it, it was quite nice because the patient's uh, expectations were, it, it was a blank piece of paper. So you could really um, change the way that physiotherapy was 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 seen and how we want to approach those those patients, um, and as the hospital grew, I mean, by the time I left, I can't remember how many staff, how many how much staff we had in the hospital, but it was way over seven hundred people, um, and it just grew and grew and grew, and it was a fantastic period in terms of getting exposed to research, um, different philosophies, you know, like how does uh, somebody from Australia work versus somebody from Denmark or from South Africa? 
And um, yeah, that was a really, really fantastic time. And then I joined the last two years when I was in Qatar, I joined the Qatar national team. Um, worked there for two seasons um, for the last World Cup and we played some qualifiers there and went back to Aspita and headed up sort of like an elite pathway um, for, for international athletes where we had a team of sports scientists, myself, um, a doc, sports nutritionists, psychologists, everybody on board and we, we tried to create the best package possible for these athletes and um, then we slowly slowly started getting players in from all around the world and um, also from Liverpool and the contact came again through the current sporting director Michael Edwards that funny enough worked with me in Portsmouth as well and um, we just started talking and he said well what are you doing would you like to come so I think I had a an interview that almost took a year for me to actually get the position in the end. So they, they spoke with the owners and spoke with um, Michael and with the coaching staff at some stage, but it, it almost took a year for us to, to make the move to, to Liverpool. And yeah, and then spent three years in Liverpool. Uh, had I think a very good time there um, with uh, in terms of success, and then unfortunately COVID hit, and um, we decided as a family, and you you will know this better than I. You once you're in football, there's just nothing else. It it just um, eats you alive, and family unfortunately is left behind a lot of the times. And when COVID hit, we just realized okay there's more to life than this. And, you know, we have small children and we decided to move on. And here we are in Greece. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpick from that, um, Phil. And, and yeah, I, I totally get the, the last, the last point about working in football. I mean, it, a lot of people who are listening, who have their heart set on a career in football. I mean, it brings, some amazing times and some experiences, but yeah, the definitely the the grind of competitive football seasons and the demands mean that you you don't you don't get to spend a lot of time with your family. I mean, the Premier League, what was it, eleven months of the year, pretty much, you know, six plus one days a week. Wow, <laughs> and, absolutely, um, and and you miss out on all those things that other people take for granted. Of course, it brings its its uh, its benefits too. Um, We'll, we'll go on and talk a bit about that in a, in a minute when we talk about some of the sort of demands. But um, I, I actually, you know, I think draw the listeners' attention to the fact that Aspitar, and you, you were there right at the start, but the developments from a sports science and research community in Aspitar have been like world-leading in terms of driving some of the stuff that, you know, we do. And you you highlighted there some interesting stuff around that kind of multidisciplinary, but also multicultural approach that you benefited from, you know, how does, how did that sort of help you set up for when you came into the Premier League and started to work in, in, in actually Premier League football? Like what, what was it about Aspatar that, and that multidisciplinary stuff there that really, you know, you think gave you some advantages when you came in? Um, you know, that, 
funny enough, the best part around this whole thing is to go to to learn that um, you, you have to be open to change. So you have to be adaptable. You have to go in with a blank sheet and realize that, you know, I, I mean, I'm German and, um, you know, Germans have their stigmatas for, um, <laughs> you know, being maybe very accurate and very precise and uh, very direct. And you just have to, to realize that, that there's other ways and you can, you can um, approach a problem in different ways and there will be still an outcome and it might be even better than the outcome that you thought of. So that was one of the big, big learning curves in Qatar that you just, you have to adapt. Otherwise you go under. Um, and I think that really ha helped me going into the, into the Premier League and coming back to England again um, in, a, in a slightly different environment. Um, but also what, what was really, really good, and you mentioned this before, was this multidisciplinary uh, approach. So, you know, you, you want to see the podiatrist. You walk up two flights of stairs and you've got a whole lab there with specialists from all over the world. You have um, nutritionists around the corner. You want to speak to a doc. The docs are, you just knock on the door and you can walk in and discuss. Um, we started um, a, a groin clinic with some, cl uh, with some colleagues of mine. And for me, this was probably the best way of working together as a team where we had a, a surgeon, we had a sports physician, we had a physiotherapist, and we just saw these, these patients all together. And uh, we unified our approach. How do we diagnose? How do we um, treat those patients? How do we reassess them? If something went wrong, when are we going to go for surgical um, procedure? What would be the rehabilitation protocol afterwards? So it was, it was a really nice environment to work together. And um, that, I thought, was one of the, the pluses that I could take with me in my toolbox um, to to England to work to work together and to work uh, for the for the best of the the, the athlete and the, the player itself. Yeah, that's that's a really nice um, insight. I think into that multi multidisciplinary approach and and the collaborative environment that you had there, which is not always something that you see when you go around the grounds and you look in terms of professional sports. Um, Along that theme, actually, you know, obviously when you're actually working in as a leader of a medical team and a performance team in, in, in a football context, and this is becoming quite a trend now, is that players, especially at the elite level, are going abroad and have their own medical teams, perhaps have their own physios. Um, you know, I remember going to actually uh, Eden Rehab uh, with one of the players from Arsenal at one point um, and there was a definite difference in philosophy from the club to the national team. Um, similarly, some of the stuff that comes from Spanish uh, doctors, you know, when dealing with Spanish players. How do you or how did you navigate that difference of opinion that you get and those different cultural uh, challenges that come into the come into the role of managing a team? Um, yeah, I think that's a difficult one, but I always said to myself, um, imagine you have a 
pediatrician that you really, really trust, right? And that's for your, for your kid, for your daughter, for your son. And um, you know that this guy knows your child inside out. He knows the history. He knows everything about this kid. And you move away. And all of a sudden, your, your kid gets ill. And, um, you know, you call your doc up and you feel really confident and you want to go there. Um, but then maybe your employer would say, hey, go and see our doc. You know, he's really good too. What would you do? And I came to the, the, the conclusion, you know, it's it, a lot of it is psychology. It's about security. I mean, you, you're... You're talking about somebody's livelihood here. If if a player and for them playing is their livelihood, um, if it comes to being able to play or not being able to play, then you want to have in your mind the best possible option. So the job that we as medical or as performance department have is just to facilitate and to help the athlete understand when something is wrong um, and that could be, you know, the protocol is not right or they're pushing too hard or they're pushing too little or the treatments are just not appropriate. But I think the psychological factor of feeling safe and feeling taken care of um, is, is, is worth a lot and probably sometimes more than the actual therapy. So I came to the conclusion that, okay, you want to go somewhere, I understand it, we'll come with, we'll see what gets done, um, we follow up, we'll speak with the practitioners, we'll try and even come over if it's a, a longer period. But I don't think there's a point in holding players back um, if they want to go somewhere because it's, it's just... You know, people get upset and then it's hurt egos because they go, oh, why is he not staying with us? And I don't really think that is the case. It's not about you as a person, as the therapist. It is about this person that has the injury and he needs to feel taken care of. And if that's not in the club, then you as a club should facilitate the, the treatment path. Well, yeah, and as as you were speaking there, I was thinking that's that's exactly how we met, actually. Phil. Yes, um, which we won't we won't talk about the details of the particular yeah. player, but that's exactly how we met. And yeah. you know your your openness, your openness to work with with me at the time was was something that I really valued, and obviously the the player in question really valued too. And and I think from my own perspective, you know that's probably influenced me quite heavily in how I deal with it now you know when players come in and say well I've got my physio coming um you know from from my national team or from my country I've got this injury at the moment I really trust them okay look well I'll, I want to meet them you know I'm happy to within the bounds of confidentiality uh, you know and, and with their permission to share that information that's going to benefit that player because ultimately not only are we looking after them, but we're also wanting them to come and perform and do their best for the right. team that we're working with. So I think, yeah, like trying trying to put egos out the way. I think where where it breaks down for me, and this is the this is the thing, is when you have a lack of communication and a lack of accountability for some of these yeah. people who work outside of teams, and especially those people who are kind of um, 
who haven't worked within a football setup. You know, I think if you if you've worked within a football setup, you're very aware of that communication as being a vital component because there's so many different ways to achieve the outcome that you end up disagreeing with someone who's also got the same good intentions, but they're just doing it in a different way Um, rather than bringing everybody around a table and going, well, look, I disagree with you, but you come out with one way when you work inside an organization, you know, and that can create some big um, barriers, I think, to, to progress in that, in that area too. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think when it becomes dangerous is, like you said, the accountability. And it, it is crucial that um, you know, prof- a lot of professional players, they, they're so used to getting told what to do that they don't want to really take responsibility. But I think it, when, it, when it comes to your health, and you need to understand what is happening and if something goes wrong that you know there's there's a part to carry on on either side it's obviously on on the side of the department but it's also on the side of the player because i mean they made the choice to go there and if it gets highlighted that this treatment is not appropriate for whatever this player has or you know the physical conditioning is just not good enough or it's too much then the player needs to take some responsibility. And this is a real hot topic because what do you really do about it if something goes wrong? Um, then most of the times you're left to pick up the pieces, but that is a part of the job as well to be there as a safety net afterwards and, um, and, and help them back to, to performance. Yeah, we've addressed some of the sort of challenges of the the elite football environment so far i think uh one thing we've discussed before phil and i i think you know your your thoughts on this are, are really are really nice is the sort of challenges to a medical team especially thinking around the high stakes performance environments that you're working in you know what what does that mean for what does that mean for the medical and performance team so the staff that are working with the players what yeah, what do you think? You're, in a way, you, you're facing similar amount of pressure than the players do. I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, playing in front of thousands of people, but you, your mind, you, you can't escape it. You know, the, 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 the performance of the team directly filters down to the backroom staff, um, the pressure they feel you feel in a way because they're pushing you, they want to come back early they and which is totally normal and and you have to try and stay focused on making the right decisions in this high pressure environment and this might be that a player says hey you know i feel great i can go back on the pitch but you just know the tissue is not ready it's not healed yet he hasn't done enough work on the pitch and then you need to to um, be the sounding board and the, the damper um, and, and that's quite challenging. And the same goes obviously for working with the, the coaching staff. Their their the areas of interest are different, but the same. And we all want to win. But the difference is that they think of the next game and they want to have as much players available as possible. So you have that pressure to deal with as well. And um, I think it's it's never. 
an easy and you you correct me if i'm wrong it's never an easy conversation to to go and speak to the coaching staff about a player that's maybe not ready or um you know the sake oh can he play 30 minutes and you the, the reality is you, you can't say yes he can because he might drop out in the first two minutes he might never drop out so you know you it, it's it's very very difficult to to play that uh, part and i think that's the biggest challenge in in medical and in performance in general yeah i, I won't correct you because I, I don't think there's a right and wrong there i think it, it is always a it, it's an it's a balance isn't it it's a it's a balance and uh making the most of all of the information available to you and making sure that people know the inf- information you need to help you provide that information to the coaching team and, and, and the manager. And the way I position it is, you know, actually it's not our decision at the end of the day. It, it, it comes down to us educating the key people involved in that decision to help them to make the right decision. And that's the coach and the player. Um, and you can involve other stakeholders, sporting director, etc. But um, yeah, I think it comes down to that. And like, when it's helped me a lot to be able to walk in a room and might you might have a disagreement on something but essentially it's just me providing you with my opinion and that opinion has been influenced by the discussions and the preparation and all those conversations we've had with the performance team to get to this point there's our advice and our opinion it's up to you whether you take it you know, and then and then that kind of removes you away from sort of making these decisions on yeah, he can play, he can't play, he can play thirty minutes, he can play sixty minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, you get you get proved wrong. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you get sucked into it, and um, it, it depends. You know, it depends who you're talking to. Some somebody might want to hear, can he play? Can he not play? Yeah. And the reality. To this answer, you don't know if you if you say he can play, you're lying, and if you say he can't play, you're also lying because unless the guy has a broken leg and you send him out with a broken leg, um, <laughs> which is pretty obvious, then but there, there is no right answer. So you, you're going back to gut feeling, experience, and like you said, you know the the parameters that you collect. Um, which is a totally different topic again because you know as much as I do that to make sense out of all these parameters that we collect is also uh, um, an absolute nightmare. And um, I don't know how much they really give us um, and, and explain to us the readiness of the player, especially post-injury. No, I think, I think exactly that. Um, and also it probably comes back to that trusting relationship, doesn't it? The trusting relationship with the player, the trust, relationship with the the coach um i think that really is where it comes down to it and you know at a less elite level when i was developing and 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 sort of applying my trade in semi-professional rugby we used to have a coach there who used literally used to ask me at selection meetings what's your gut you know what's your gut feeling what's your gut feeling on this player for the weekend and we'd make that decision on a tuesday night you say, what, what's your gut? What's your gut, Ben? And I would say he's 60-40 or he's 70-30. So we actually sort of came down to that decision. But because we worked together for probably, I think it was around four years, that became pretty decent and they trusted it enough 
and that really helped them to make the decision around who was going to be fit at the weekend and who wasn't. And it, all the bells and whistles and all the technology and all the data and all those other things actually probably don't help at the end of the day. It comes yeah. back to yeah, yeah, it comes back to gut feeling that and 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 probably you know the gut feeling and the gut feeling of the team together plus the player in front of you will help you make as good a decision as possible in that moment. So yeah, yeah. it's it's. Yeah, it would be an interesting one because I used to do the same uh, in terms of percentage, you know, readiness percentage. And uh, did you did you feel like there was a cutoff point where, you know, if you'd say, oh, it's a 50-50 chance, and then people say, mm -hmm. if you say, oh, it's a 70% chance that they get injured, then uh, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe you shouldn't play. But if you say it's like 60, then it's like, I'll take a 60. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that? Like that there was Yeah, sort of yeah, like I, I still do it now, actually. So I, I still sort of ask players, like, you know, if 100% is you – your best game ever, um, you know, flying absolutely 100% fit, you know, where are you today? And usually they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm 85, 90% or something. And you go, no, 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 right. Let, let's, let's reframe this question. You 100% fit, fully flying, best, you know, not injured, not coming back from injury. Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. Um, and if someone says to me something below 50, if they say 40, I think, well, they're not ready. Yeah, yeah, they're not ready. If someone yeah, yeah. says 70, 80, I'm like, well, they're close. They're probably still not ready, but it comes down to then a kind of, you know, an acceptable level of risk almost. Yeah, and that's, yeah. what you're, that's what you're trying to gauge versus a 40 where, you know, as long as you trust the player, I mean, some people are, are way out, aren't they? They're 100% all the time yeah, or, they're, yeah. or they've got an agenda where they... <laughs> Well, they want to play. and then they, they just tell you what you want to hear but yeah exactly exactly it's a, but i think it's, it's it, it would be interesting to actually you know get that get that done in a kind of a statistical way and see actually how how right you are and who who fails and who breaks down and who actually succeeds based on that yeah. just simple percentage readiness to play um, in the right hands, in the right place yeah 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 absolutely i think the it's um how this will correlate yeah it would be really interesting so we, we've talked about sort of player care we've talked about the challenges of elite environments um we, we talked off air beforehand and, and i i really liked and appreciated this around your role in in kind of medical leader and performance team leader as a caretaker and i just wanted you to sort of like share that with the listeners because i i really i really like that sort of um, thought process that you had yeah I mean first of all there's so many job titles out there and you know like it, 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 many of them make no sense you know it's performance director it's uh, head of performance it's uh, head of medical so you've got all these different things out there but the, the, for me what I realized in this high pressured environment is that Apart from all the other things that, you know, is your monitoring, your, your data acquisition, your testing, um, your treatments, your rehab, all this stuff, you, your job is also to look after the people that work within the environment. So, you know, all the people that work with you, you, need, you almost need to be there to allow them to perform at the best of their capabilities and 
because of this de demanding environment, um, you know, seven days a week, somebody might have family, um, they have kids at home, they haven't seen them in a while, they come to work, they take it to work. And it, it just filters down. So you just need to be almost there to, to understand that. Or if somebody professionally wants to develop and you they're frustrated because they want to move on in their role and they want to be somewhere else, you have to have a plan in place. Or somebody wants to go on an education, you have to be there and facilitate that in order for those people to, to thrive in this environment, in this high-pressured environment, and to give them a little bit more of longevity. The reality is we're, we're not millionaires. You know, nobody gets a player salary in this, um, you know, you earn good money and it's a great job. But the reality is you're not retiring at 35. So you need to do this for a very, very long time. And if you burn yourself out um, and this becomes your sole life, it just there's it's very hard it's very very difficult to do this and i don't think it's healthy after a while um so yeah i think apart from being um the, you know the, the performance part you also have to be the i don't want to say the caretaker but you, you have to care you have to care about your people that work there yeah i agree i i think and some people are better than that you know than, than others at that aren't they uh, uh, we had at arsenal we had one of one of our staff who was basically sort of self-appointed or well, actually i think i think i might have appointed him just simply because he had a real knack for looking out for people you know he's he's the guy that remembered people's birthdays he's the guy that you know asked you about what you did at the weekend and remembered what you were doing and and, and it sounds really simple, but the caring aspect of that meant that you, you need someone to actually go against the grain. It's a traditional environment, elite sport. There's this presentism that everybody has, and it's you know it's it happens in the US, it happens in the UK. We all work hard. We're all in the job, and we know we have to work hard. But there are times when you can take that opportunity to basically, you know, like just take the pressure off and get yourself back in a good frame of mind, ready to come and help the team again. And I think, you know, certainly you're right. Uh, someone who's got an eye for that, someone who's uh, allowing people to thrive and flourish by looking at their personal development pathway, that's massively going to fill up their energy bucket. You know, it's not going to take away from them and it's going to keep them going when you're driving through the long winter you know, you're in on Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and, and other people are at home on holiday. Yes, you do get paid better, but you've also got to look after yourself. And I think that's an absolutely vital component of of what you offer as a as a head of department in in, a, in an elite football environment. So yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And and that it's okay. You know, I mean, you you know as well as I do when you're not there for a day, it's like, oh, you had a, a cheeky day off and, and, and this kind of comment. And then it's like, you know, yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, it was great. And, and and that's really important, you know, to also have this, this safety net that you don't come into work and say, oh my God, what are the others going to think now that I had a day off and I didn't come? And it's, it's just that that's unhealthy. I think it's, it's, uh, it's not sustainable. And, uh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's a perfect word. Yeah, perfect word for it. And, 
and I had an interesting encounter on stage at some stage, and I had a, a guy coming in and talking about the role of head of performance, and um, you know, it was all very. It, w- it was great. I mean, it was a great presentation, and it was all about you know how process and procedures would work, what recovery strategies, what kind of treatment modalities, what kind of uh, strength and conditioning protocols um, w- were applied. But there was very little of that sort of like saying, okay, what else? You know, th- th- this is what usually you know you the people on the floor do anyway you know they they will have a protocol for um recovery they will have a protocol for their rehabilitation so it's already there and of course you need to oversee it and if the the mistakes or something can be improved you can make suggestions but um there's just more to it yep and it filters down down in the in the team it it definitely does yeah it differentiates the 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 best teams from from the rest, right? Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you, you reminded me then actually of a question I got asked on a podcast um, a couple of weeks ago. And the question was, um, who, and we're talking about kind of practitioners here, who, who, makes a, who makes a good head of performance? You know, is it a physio? Is it a strength and conditioning coach? Is it a, is it a sports scientist? Uh, what, what's, what's your opinion on that? And I'm, I'm kind of expecting an answer here, but there isn't isn't one or another. But yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's the answer. I was it expecting. doesn't matter who who is it. Um, it's usually the person that cares. That, that that I would say. You know, of course, there has to be a knowledge, but i always would say i would always choose a person that i trust over the best practitioner out there and um why is that because you can learn skills you can educate but personality traits are very hard to change and i think if you if you are somebody that can be trusted and that can um has an open ear and is willing to change and willing to to adapt. I think these are all trademarks that you have to have in a position like that to to be successful. Yeah, that's um, that's also echoed. I think it's I think it might be Simon Sinek who who talks about his interactions with some high performing teams, and he went into the Navy SEALs, and their way of putting it is, "Do I trust you with my wife and my life?" It's right, yeah, yeah, very similar. That's right. So nobody wants the the high performer, high uh, yes, um, yes, low trust, right? That that was yes. the whole thing. That I've seen this as well. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that actually. That's I think that is really that that hits the nail on the head. Yeah, and a lot of that is around. I think that emotional intelligence, which you were pointing out before, is like the you know, the sort of the, the family aspects of, of looking after each other in and around that environment, you know, people, high performers, especially around um, like practitioner roles can have this massive IQ and knowledge base, um, but not always got those softer skills, which, you know, are, are the key to making the impact in, in those environments. So, yeah, I think that's a good summary, a good summary. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, Phil, and I think, 
it's probably interesting we can we can talk about it from both of our perspectives here but it, like a normal day you know in a an elite football environment for those people who haven't worked in in an elite football environment what does a what does a normal day look like for a performance team how does that what's the workflow look like um what does the workflow look like so usually it starts early in the morning um let's say you're there at uh, eight ish um then you have the meeting with the long-term rehabbers um they usually start before the the training starts and the dedicated rehab team takes care of them so you're there for that then do bits and pieces around staff education um answering emails have lunch <laughs> then you you probably two or two and a half hours before training you start um, with your staff meeting you just go through players that might be you know fl flagging that um or or had picked up some knocks uh, in the in the session before and you discuss those treat them reassess them with the doc and the head physio and then report to the coaching staff if they're not able to train, if they have to be aware of something, if they need to be modified, um, then continue with the treatment of the players. Training session usually goes on, which is covered by a member of staff. And then after the training session, which is, takes about an hour and a half, two hours with pre-activation and all that stuff. And then after that, you, you meet again once all the players are done and you go through the day if anything happens. Um, you make a plan for the next day. Do any medical appointments need to be set up? Does anybody see, need to see a specialist? Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And by the time you had dinner, it's um, eight till eight, six, yeah. seven days a week. Yep, eight till late. I think that's... Um... Uh, not always the case, but yeah, mo most of the time. I mean, it's interesting. You you had that sort of morning rehab and training in the afternoon. We we used to have um, some players who left their engine running and would would come in, go to training, and they'd be gone by <laughs> by lunchtime. Yeah, no, but, no, no. Uh, there are a few, but then there are others coming in at seven thirty, trying to do a session before the main session, and then they're still there, um, still there in the pool at you know, five o'clock, five, five, six o'clock when you're trying to kick them out because the well, traffic's building up on the N25. With the rehabbers, I mean, so we, we had a dedicated team, which I think you guys did as well, which basically was just two physios and uh, one strength and conditioning coach and they would take care of all the long-term rehabs. Um, and then we had a travel team and obviously the guys that come in early in the morning, we trained most of the time or also in Qatar, we trained late in the evening. So you try to bring in all the rehabs beforehand and their day drags on, you know, by the time you've done all your treatment, your movement preparation, your pool sessions and all that sort of stuff, you know, the day's gone. And then the players come in for training and then, um, so that's why the days become so long. Yeah. I think we had, uh, we had a sort of individual physio for, who would take maybe the responsibility of a, of one or two players, depending on the injury list at the time. And then we'd have a strength and conditioning coach specifically working inside with the injured players um, around their, their programming. And they would have 
you know, lunch and then a fitness session after lunch at some point and probably massage and other work uh, to take care of them. Whereas yeah. the, the healthy players, they would be in there for only sort of half a day really in total because they'd be, if we had a morning session, they'd be in for that pre-activation, maybe some testing, monitoring. They'd finish the session. They'd, if there was a strength component to do on that day, they'd do it and then they'd have lunch and, and you know, unless there was anything else to do, they'd probably be gone. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much the same wherever you go. The demands are similar and how you organise that are, you know, is, is up to the individual organisations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Phil, I'm really grateful for your time. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Shame we couldn't have a beer. Um, yes, I hope at some stage we'll do in the sun. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, get the get the weather sorted in Greece, and I'll I'll, I'll <laughs> pop over. I'll pop over in the summer, get some time off. Um, but yeah, thanks again for giving up your your precious time today. Um, and uh, just the just the last thing on it. I know you're not massive on social media, Phil, but where can people no. where can people follow you? Um, follow me. I mean, the only thing I really do is I've got my LinkedIn profile. So if, if anybody has any questions, you're more than welcome to to um, text me on on LinkedIn. But uh, I don't really do social media otherwise. That is absolutely fine. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll link you up in the show notes. But again, Phil, thanks very much for coming on today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.